0: We are continuing our walk through the book of Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis, the primordial or primeval history. And like we said, the first week of this series, Genesis 1 through 12, excuse me, 1 through 11 is the preface to the Bible. So it's like the beginning voiceover of the Lord of the Rings movie, where uh, Kate Blanchett's character is giving like the vast history of how the ring got to into being and how it came across or ended up in the hands of the little hobbit. And so that whole beginning of the movie is a massive voiceover that covers ages of history and big, massive cosmic events and, uh, or worldwide events rather. And it has so many things in it that if you could stop and go, wait, wait, I have a question. Who's that? What happened then? Tell me about this battle. Cause this looks really cool. But the point of that voiceover in the movie is to get you to the action Get you to the main story, which is about the ring and how the hobbits have to take it and do whatever they have to do with it. No spoilers. Um, so that's like Genesis 1 through 11. Genesis 1 through 11 is doing that, but it's doing that same thing with the whole Bible story. It's trying to get the listener, the reader, to the point where we introduce or we meet the man Abraham, or Abram as he's called, because then. That is going to be where the action of the Bible, where the covenantal main story picks up. So everything in Genesis 1 through 11 is getting us to Genesis 12 when we meet Abram and God gives the Abrahamic promise to him. And that begins the story of the people of Israel uh, in, in more detail, their family history everything before that is like cosmic history or or worldwide history, rather. So in Genesis 1 through 11, we're getting these, these massive epics of time, these, these big leaps over huge amounts of time and ages and peoples. And some only get a hint, some only get a mention, uh, all the way back to primordial humanity, uh, the first man and the first woman who we met in the last couple of weeks. If you missed those, hop on the podcast, discipledojo.org slash podcast, go back and check out the opening chapters of Genesis that we've discussed. So we, we've moved from this, the um, creation of the world, everything in Genesis 1, uh, down to the specifics, the, the account of the first creation and the uh, giving of the authority as vice regents over all of creation to humanity. Genesis two, then we saw how humanity surrendered that authority, gave it up through their rebellion by siding with the serpent rather than siding with God as they should have done and exercising dominion. Uh, And so therefore they were expelled from the land. And this has resonances with later Israel's history when Israel disobeys the covenant. So Adam and Eve are like a a microcosmic version of what's going to happen to Israel. When Israel um, disobeys the covenant, when Israel breaks the covenant, when Israel rebels against God later in their history, they again will be expelled from the land. Again, they will be taken eastward from the land, this time into captivity in Babylon. So these early events are kind of... Um, foreshadowing, or some would see typological elements in them, but they are going to be recapitulated later in Israel's history as a whole. So the story that's being told is a story that is timeless for all generations of Israel's history. And it's, it's it shows repeated patterns in terms of human behavior, in terms of God's response to sin. And so these stories, while they are uh, rooted in some historical aspects, not as far as we can say, because the genre and the type of writing is a little different than what we see when we get down to the patriarch narratives, to Abraham and his family. While they're rooted in something historical, they're not told in a straight linear history kind of way. We're not getting the same amount of detail in Genesis 1 through 11 as we get in Genesis 12 through 50, for instance. So we have to be careful of that. Well-meaning Christians will come to this and just read it flat and say, well, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Well, okay, but we have to read Scripture on its own terms, again, rather than what, how we think it should be read. And so it's really important to understand what's going on in these early chapters of Genesis because we are getting, it, it's a mistake to call it myth, in the sense of it didn't happen, how we normally use the word myth. But it's also a mistake to call it history, like it's just giving a standard account, like how some um, you know, uh, young earth creationists or, or, or biblical literalists will put it. It's not doing either of those things. These early chapters of Genesis are giving us a highly stylized, epic history condensed into a short amount of time. For the sake, not because it happened in a short amount of time, this could have spanned tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, but rather because it's tr- it's compressing things in order to get to the main point of the Bible, which is not about um, fallen angels or floods or uh, eating of forbidden fruit. It, it's not about those things. The founding of cities, the founding of cultures, it, that's what, not what the Bible is concerned with. What it's concerned with is getting us to this man, Abram, who we're going to meet, and then mm. starting the story from a common uh, understanding in the ancient Near East. So Genesis 4 then told the story of how sin immediately snowballs from the first sin of disobeying God and eating something that I was supposed to eat. The second sin was murder, brother killing brother. And this resonates with cultures all over the world. Uh many cultures have some type of mythological account of, of, of brothers fighting against each other. Um, there, there's aspects of Genesis. Let me say it this way. There are echoes in the myths of the world of a common past that humanity shares. And that's really important. Especially when we get to the flood account, there are echoes throughout the world and throughout the different religions and the different myths and the different stories of a shared common past. And so what we're getting in Genesis, at least what the biblical authors think we're getting in Genesis, is sort of the, the, the covenant version of that. What C.S. Lewis called the true myth, uh, the, the corrected version or the preserved version that got disseminated out and, and manipulated and changed and transformed through cultural spread into all the other peoples of the earth. And so all of that in mind, we come to Genesis 5, and now we end Genesis 4, with at that time men began to call on the name of the Lord, and showing that even though sin had spread, and we, and we saw that as epitomized through Lamech and his polygamy and his boastfulness and his violence, uh, and he's sort of the prototypical figurehead of uh, future conquering kings and warlords and despots and mighty men of old, as we're going to see in this chapter, even despite that, the very end of chapter four lets us know that, but Adam, I mean, Adam and Eve had many, many other children. We don't know how many, but a lot, but it says Adam and Eve had another child and his name was Seth. And Seth then becomes this thread that's going to wind its way through the genealogies and culminate in Noah where Ab- or Cain wound his way through the genealogies and culminated in Lamech. So we're going to have Lamech in contrast with Noah and the two as sort of embodying or representative of the two uh, th- approaches that people took towards God at this time in primeval history. So verse five, or chapter 5 begins the new section in Genesis. The book of Genesis is divided into these sections called the Toledot. Uh, toledot is, uh, toledot is, is translated in English as something like, these are the generations of, or this is the account of. Uh, NIV Old NIV says, this is the written account of. And so that's a phrase, Toledot. So whenever you see that phrase, that's a section of the book of Genesis. So we were in the section of the heavens and the earth. And now we're moving into the section, the Toledot of Adam's line. And this is going to be, uh, the people who carried forth Adam's image, which was the image of God. And that's showing how God has preserved this remnant throughout all of the world's downward spiral into industry and chaos and violence and polygamy and wanton lusts and all of these things that characterize the ancient world, even in their own writings, um, <clears throat> we're getting the, the, the dangling hope that not all is lost. That there's a remnant, a righteous remnant who has not forgotten God, who has still calls on the name of the Lord, as the last verse of chapter four says. So chapter five begins, this is the written account or the toledot of Adam's line. So chapter five, verse one, all the way through chapter six, verse eight is going to be one section. And then in chapter 6 9, we're going to start the next Toledot that's going to happen to focus on the Noah uh, story, the flood account and all of that. But so this whole chunk that we're going to deal with hopefully today is one uh, section of the writing. And this is we're going to we're about to see what's called a linear genealogy. So. Let me pause and tell you real quick about genealogies in the Bible, because this is where people stop reading usually. This is where Bible studies and preachers gloss over genealogies, and that's unfortunate. It's understandable because the names are hard to pronounce. I'm going to show you how to pronounce Hebrew names. It's not hard. And the importance of genealogies. Genealogies are not like our modern genealogy, Ancestry.com or 23andMe or any of these other things where people like to get into their genealogy. That's not why the ancient world did it. So our genealogies today, like people that are really into genealogies, they'll go and like find out who their grandparents were on both sides and then who their parents were on both sides. And they will sketch out this massive family tree that branches out in all these directions. The ancients didn't really care about that as much from what we can see in their writings. Genealogies in the ancient world, in the biblical world, were to get you from one person to another person. And the people in between were links in the chain. So it wasn't concerned with giving an entire exhaustive account. Genealogies also weren't exhaustive even vertically. They weren't, so they weren't exhaustive horizontally. In other words, they didn't give everybody's relatives. And they also weren't exhaustive vertically. Genealogies in the Bible regularly skip generations because the people that they skip over for the purpose of the writer of the genealogy aren't as important for whatever reason. So we see this. We see this in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew. Jesus's genealogy in Matthew is structured as three big chunks of Israel's history each 14 generations so they each encapsulate a period of Israel's history from Abraham to I think Moses Moses to David or no to the exile sorry Uh, and then from the exile and the return all the way to the time of Jesus so the genealogy of uh, David, not Moses. Anyway, we're not studying Matthew. Forgive me for that. We, the genealogy of Matthew, he is structured and he does it in such a way that each section ends up being 14 names. Now we know that's not the case, because when we compare his genealogy to Luke's genealogy or to some of the genealogies in Chronicles, we see that Matthew leaves out a few names, skips over some people in the list. And this is understandable because in Hebrew, there's not a separate word, at least in biblical Hebrew, there's not a separate word of father and grandfather or son and grandson or became the father of versus became the ancestor of it's, it's all means the same thing. So whoever, if your grandfather, you would consider that could be called your father, your great, great grandfather could be called your father. When you die, you are gathered to your fathers, gathered to your ancestors. So the point of the Genesis genealogy, the point of the biblical genealogies, is just to get you from point A to point B, from this person to this person. And it's usually structured in a way that is intended to communicate something. And it's different in, in different times and different periods. And I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. But for instance, the genealogies in Genesis in this chapter chapter five and then in chapter 10 after the flood story both of those are set up as two genealogies that are linear genealogies until the last person and then it segments which we'll talk about in a second and each is 10 generations and the tenth in each generation the seventh in each generation has something peculiar or unique or important about them so 10 generations and number seven is a person of note That's what we see in Genesis. And these early genealogies in Genesis are capturing, they're they're meant to portray more than just who was related to who, but they're they're characterizing the line of so-and-so with the line of so-and-so, the line of Seth with the line of Cain. Cain's line culminates in Lamech and all of the things we saw in the genealogy last week about um, industry and art and culture and everything like that, which are good things, but also the violence and the sin of Lamech. Well, Seth's line is going to culminate in Noah. And then eventually the next go round it's going to end with a guy named Terah. And Terah is going to have a couple of sons. And one of those sons' names is Abram. So that's what these genealogies are meant to do in the Bible is to get you to, to, to encapsulate a long period of history into a compressed list that gets you from point A to point B. This is why in the Middle Ages, when Bishop James Usher uh, used the genealogies to calculate the age of the earth and came up with 4004 BC, this is why that's not correct. Bishop Usher was well-respected, probably well-intentioned, probably a good medieval scholar, but he was simply wrong to take the genealogy lists and use those as definite markers of counting years because that's not how they function. They do leave out generations. We don't know how many generations there actually were between uh, the exodus and Israel, uh, entering, or before the exodus, the time of the exile in Egypt, or slavery in Egypt, and then Israel entering the land under Joshua. There's differences in some of the genealogies. If you just simply laid them out and counted up the years, it it almost wouldn't work. And it's the same thing between the genealogy of Matthew and the genealogy of Luke, as you would see that Matthew has left out some names. And so the Genesis account, when we if we read it and just count backwards, we end up with uh, something that's far shorter than the period of time that even recorded history goes back to. You know, Chinese mission uh, people, missionaries to China, when they got there and they were telling the Chinese, well, the world began in 4004, you know, Chinese and, and other cultures were like, well, we have recorded history that goes back further than that. So that's not true. So how can we trust anything you're saying? So it's important to not create these false uh, additions to the gospel and make them things that you stand upon, like some young earth teaching ministries do, creation museums, ARC experiences, Ken Ham, Kent Hovind, um, John MacArthur, these type of teachers, we want to be very careful because what that does is then that sets an interpretation based on calculations, based on something that's not actually in the text crystal clear, sets that up as an essential, and then if you disagree with that, whether through science or through history or through culture, then you write off Scripture's faithfulness. We don't want to do that. We don't want to put unnecessary stumbling blocks in people's way when they don't need to be. So you can't, genealogies, you cannot use genealogies to calculate the age of anything because you don't know how many generations there were that got skipped over in the genealogies. And furthermore, some of the names in these genealogies, this and especially the one in chapter 10, they're people names, but they're also people's names. You're going to see names like Mizraim, which is the Hebrew word for Egypt. Egypt is going to be a son of somebody. So is that talking about Egypt, like the son, or is that talking about Egypt, the people that came from that ancestor, just like we say, Israel, Israel was a man, his name was Jacob, but he was also Israel, the people of Israel. So there's a fluidity of language that we just want to take into account. And before we try to nail land hard on a specific interpretation, in, in things of dating and ages and all of that. The reason I'm even spending time on this, one, because people skip this part of the Bible because they think it's boring. Two, because people use it as, as auxiliary proofs of their view of Scripture and the age of the earth and creation and science and all of this stuff. And then we'll just say, well, I'm just reading the text. You don't believe the Bible? Just beware of that. Just be aware of it. That's all. Scripture does not demand any particular reading, no matter how hard John MacArthur pounds his pulpit, no matter how much Ken Ham debates Bill Nye the science guy telling you you got to believe the Bible in every detail as he's interpreting it. No, no, you don't. You don't. And Christians and Jews faithful over the centuries haven't. So it's okay to hold it with loose hands and see what the story is teaching. Before we start trying to fill in all those details about the science and the anthropology and, and uh, you know, the development of life and all of this stuff. Okay, so that horse is sufficiently beaten to death. Let's get on with the text. Chapter 5. <clears throat> this is the written account of Adam's life. When God created man, and literally that first word is in the day of, singular day, Of God's creating man, just like in chapter 2, verse 4, it said, in the day of his creatings of the heaven and the earth. So that tells us once again that the word day is not just a 24 hour period, it can mean a long span of time. Do with that what you will. We talked about it during week one. In the day God created Adam, man, human, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. This harkens back to Genesis 1 and the creation, the first poem in the Bible. Uh, male and female, he created him in the image and likeness, in the image of God. Now it's using the word likeness, which are used somewhat interchangeably. And he blessed them. And when they were created, he called them Adam, man, human. <clears throat> now, verse 3, this begins the 10 generation genealogy of this Adam, who was male and female, in the verse we just read and now it's going to fluidly shift into a particular individual Adam Adam so when Adam had lived hundred and thirty years he had a son in his own likeness in his own image that's language going back to the first creation account and he named him Seth after Seth was born Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters Altogether, Adam lived 930 years and then he died. Now, we're going to talk about the age thing in a minute in terms of how there's long lifespans because it, for us it just seems insane to think of that. But from the storyline point, what's happening that you can't miss is that even though sin, rebellion, death, violence, downfall of humanity and their relationship with God, even though all of that's been recorded in the preceding chapters, we still see God has not withdrawn his image or his likeness, even from fallen man. And this is a huge point theologically when we look at the world today. There are Christians who sometimes get in the habit of thinking only people who are born again are children of God and and you could say that in one sense scripturally in a covenant sense those who have been born of God have the right to be called sons of God. yes, you can say that in a in a rhetorical sense but there's also the teaching in scripture that all humanity, whether good, bad, fallen uh, you know sinful, Christian, Buddhist, Muslim, indigenous, any of the, all people bear the image and the likeness of God and the fall the the entry of sin into the world did not erase that. So when you see people in another culture worshiping another God or worshiping gods or, or atheistic people or whatever, they are still the image of God, the likeness. They, they still have that imago Dei, image of God. And so thus they still have human dignity and worth, no matter who they are, no matter what they're involved in, no matter what sins they have, no matter who they vote for, no matter who they sleep with they are still in some way bearing the image of God. And this is so important for Christians, especially to not see the world as necessarily us and them. We're on the inside, they're on the outside. Yes, there's issues of salvation. Yes, of course, when it comes to accepting Jesus, he does make everyone make a choice. None of that's negated by simply seeing though, that every person we look into the eyes of, we're looking into the eyes of someone who bears God's image No matter how sinful they are, no matter how far from God we may think they are, they are still bearing his image as his residual offspring throughout the ages. They still have incalculable worth. And so we want to keep that in mind. That can be easily lost with evangelistic zeal, but it should never be. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, the world, the cosmos, All creation all humanity so this is tracing again from Adam all the way down to where we're going in our narrative and in this section it's going to get us to a guy named Noah so Adam gave birth to Seth second in the genealogy when Seth had lived 105 years he became the father of Enosh and after he became the father of Enosh Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters altogether Seth lived 912 years then he died Enosh, when Anosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Canaan. And after he became the father of Canaan, Enosh lived 815 years, had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived 905 years, and then he died. When Canaan had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahalalel. Now, here's how we get to these Hebrew names. I have a video. If you go to Disciple Dojo's YouTube channel, there's a video in the Dojo Discussions playlist called How to Pronounce All Those Hard Old Testament Names. And it all boils down to this, pronounce every vowel, use short sounds instead of long sounds. So ah, uh, instead of a, or it uh, instead of I. Okay. Short vowel sounds instead of long vowel sounds. And, um, that's pretty much it. That's how you do it. So the names, look at it. Mahalalel. Mahalalel. You just say every letter, pronounce some short vowels, say every letter. there's a whole video on that we get into it more so check it out if you're interested because nobody wants to be embarrassed in church or bible study when you're asked to read a passage and you come to a name and you just kind of fudge it it's not you don't need to you can you can have the power to say biblical names okay so canaan lived 70 years father of Mahalalel. after he became the father of Mahalalel, canaan lived 840 years and had other sons and daughters altogether canaan lived 910 years and then he died When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he became the father of Yared. And after he became the father of Yared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Mahalalel lived 895 years, and then he died. When Yared lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. After he became the father of Enoch, Yared lived 800 years, had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Yared lived 962 years, and then he died. Now, this is the seventh of the ten, Enoch. Enoch is the seventh in this series of 10 generations. So we expect, if we know biblical genealogies, that there's going to be something of interest about Enoch. And lo and behold, what do we find? When Enoch lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, we're expecting to see Enoch died. Doesn't say that. Enoch walked with God 300 years had other sons and daughters altogether enoch lived 365 years and then we expect to hear and he died just like we've heard every time but we don't enoch walked with god and then he was no more because god took him away that's it he's gone now people have read all kinds of things into this passage there are whole bo- there are apocryphal books First Enoch, second Enoch. This was like a cottage industry in the intertestamental time, was to go, wait a minute. There's only like two people in the Bible's history that said never died. So they must be super important. They must have figured out a way to circumvent mortality. So if we can know their secrets, then we can understand and we can overcome death. This is what Gilgamesh set out to do in the Gilgamesh epic. I just read it last night. Gilgamesh was trying to get to this guy who he believed had survived the flood in the version of Gilgamesh and thus had attained immortality. Utnapishtim was his name. So uh, Atrahasis is what he's called in other times. And so Gilgamesh goes to him and is like, hey, I've come to you, this whole epic journey that Gilgamesh makes, because – My friend Enkidu has died and I'm just distraught over it. And I realize I'm going to die too. And there has to be a way to avoid death. And the whole epic of Gilgamesh, that's what it's about and he gets to Utnapishtim at the end and Utnapishtim tells him the story of the flood and why it happened and how he survived it and then he gives the he says well if you want to you know if you want to not die here's what you can do and you got to get this plant and he gets the plant but then Gilgamesh loses the plant and a snake or a sea serpent gets it and then it's all lost and then he tells them hey basically eat drink and be married because we're all going to be worm food in the end and that's I mean that's a real condensed version of the Gilgamesh epic but That's basically the overall message of it. Well, we're getting echoes of that in this Genesis account with this guy, Enoch. Enoch, or Enoch, as some people say, walked with God, and then he was no more because God took him. So the author of this, you can almost hear an apologetic or a counter to the surrounding culture's myths, just like we've seen all during this time. Genesis takes echoes of world myths, And refurbishes, repackages them to point to the one who is the ultimate source of everything, which is God. So in this case, there's a slight hint in the Genesis text. Hey, you want to know how to not die? Walk with God. It's not a guarantee. It's not like, okay, now I can do that and I'm done. But it's a sense of, hey, the only one who can overcome death is going to be God. And so walk with him doesn't promise that if you walk with him, you won't die. There's no promise in this. This is just recounting. But Enoch's life is a testament to the fact that God and God alone can overcome the the chains of death. And this will be played out later in scripture. This will be unpacked and expanded. And ultimately, of course, in the, in the life, death resurrection of Jesus. Um, but it's, it's like a little tantalizing glimpse that death, even seems so final. I mean, how many times have we just read? We have just read seven times, and he died, and he died, and he died. It's one word in Hebrew, dead, dead, dead. All of these, and these are godly people. These are people in the line of Seth. These are people who walk with God, who call on the name of the Lord to some degree, every single one of them, dead, dead, dead. The curse of sin is not done away with, but there's the Bible does this, and it's maddening for people that really like their systematic theology in check and everything nice and neat with a bow tied up around it. The Bible will give us glimpses every now and then of things that are outside the norm, things that are outside the expected teaching, things that are just a hint, not enough to build a doctrine on, not enough to presume upon as a means of salvation or to to construct this entire worldview around. No, no, none of that. It just gives us a hint that God can always do things above and beyond the normal way that he has laid out creation. So we see that here with Enoch. Just a hint. We don't have enough. That's why all these intertestamental books popped up. People wanted to know. They wanted Enoch was like the Hebrew Utnapishtim. They wanted to find the uh, secret of how he lived, and and so of course in the books of Enoch it it, it spans upon all of this, and and there's these you know apocalyptic myths and legends that get kind of packed in there, and Enoch becomes a guide to the cosmos and the stars. And, I mean, it's just kind of, he becomes a a catch-all bin that you can throw all the questions you ever wanted to ask about God into, and then that becomes the the book of Enoch. Very popular. Even a New Testament author, even Jesus' brother Jude, quotes from one of the books of Enoch when he's making a point about God and judgment and all that. He doesn't quote it as if it's true, necessarily. He quotes it as an illustration of the concept, meaning that his audience was familiar with the Enoch literature. But in Genesis Enoch is just a glimpse that even though death is reigning over these patriarchs, these long lifespans, you know, God said on the day you eat of it, you'll die. But then they live this extraordinarily long lives. Even though that happens, God is still at work and there are exceptions. Enoch is the seventh in this line of 10 generations. And so something about Enoch is expected to be special. And guess what? It was. He walked with God and he was no more for God took him. That's all the text says. It doesn't necessarily even say he didn't die. I mean, it doesn't say that he did die. It doesn't say anything. It's a very enigmatic cryptic text. It says he walked with God and then he was no more for God took him. So we have to just leave that. It doesn't mean that every time God takes somebody that's a good thing because we're going to see later in, well, later in the New Testament, Jesus, when he warns of judgment, he says, Hey, in the days of Noah, people were taken by the flood. And you don't want to be like that. When the son of man returns, you don't want to be taken. You want to be left. So that's getting far outside of Genesis. But Jesus does reference this section and he uses taken to actually be an image of judgment rather than salvation. In Enoch's case, though, back here in Genesis, we don't know the details. Like I said, we just get a glimpse of things that are outside the norm in Genesis. And it's maddening. We're going to meet later in Genesis Melchizedek. And we're just going to get a glimpse and a hint of this dude, Melchizedek. Who is he? The text is very enigmatic. And and he also becomes an intertestamental figure who people develop a folklore around because he kind of comes and goes mysteriously. But yet what he does is incredibly significant, so much so that the New Testament writers and the author of Hebrews will liken him to a, a preview of Jesus and a, a type of Christ. But regardless, back in Genesis, let's get back to this. Uh, so Enoch walked with God, God took me, is no more. He had given birth to a son, Methuselah. Verse 25: when Methuselah had lived and se- 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. Now, this should be ominous because the last Lamech we read, same spelling, was not a good dude. He was bad. He was the epitome of the line of Cain. So we're like, uh-oh, wait a minute. So. After he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years. He had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Methuselah lived 969 years, and then he died. Oldest man in the Bible. So the man who never experienced death gave birth or produced or fathered the man who lived the longest in the Bible. So there's something about this line that's key, or or at least that has extraordinarily uh, long lifespans, especially by our reckoning. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah, and he said, He will comfort us in labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. So, the name, this is this is an interesting one Noah's name. Uh, Noach is his name, and Noach comes from the word nuach, which is, means rest. Uh, and so you would expect him to be named Noah because he's going to give rest to his people. But his father, Lamech, doesn't name him. He names him Noah because he's going to give comfort. The word comfort is Nacham. So they're, they're, they sound enough alike to be kind of a wordplay, but it's not an exact thing like we've seen with other names and we'll see with other names in Genesis. But there's something about this Noah that is going to... Do something that's going to ease the, the curse the effects of the curse that have been so prominent at this time throughout these the human history so even in the godly line this Lamech unlike the other Lamech this Lamech does know of the Lord does walk with God at least it seems and knows that something's wrong it's not the way it should be and that is hoping prophesying Uh, speaking into existence, perhaps, that his son is going to be the one that in some way undoes or brings comfort to humanity, who's suffering under the effects of the fall. And that's all we get. It's just, again, it's just a hint or a glimpse. And so Lamech lived 595 years, had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived 777 years, and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, or Japheth. And that's where it ends. So the the genealogy gets us all the way to Noah and his three sons. So Noah and his three sons, uh, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And then it pauses. Because it's going to take a long interlude now for the next few chapters and tell us about this cataclysmic event that happened at this point in the genealogy. And after that event, it's going to get back to the genealogy, chapter 10, and get us up to where the story begins, which is uh, around the time of Abram. So this is what's happening. The Noah account is like a parenthesis within the genealogy from Adam to Abraham. The Noah account is like a pause because something of massive importance in world history happens at this point. And so the author, of course, speaks to it. So let's talk about for a minute. I think we're going to have time. We might have to wait until next week to get to the um, sons of God, daughters of men, the Nephilim. But let's talk about a minute what's going on with these long lifespans in the text. I mean, you've got people living like almost a thousand years in this section. What's happening there? That's ridiculous. Nobody even lives close to that long today. There's a couple of options things you need to understand about this firstly uh, the Bible is not the only text that presents that before a cataclysmic flood people lived extraordinarily long times or some people did the Sumerian Kings list so you can actually download you can read the Sumerian Kings list it is basically the uh, ancient Near East Sumerian Akkadian version of this of what we're reading but in their own sense. So the King list, the Sumerian King list has the reigns of these Kings. And just like the Genesis account is 10 generations. uh, But the Sumerian Kings list, it, it has the names of the Kings who reigned and then the flood it says, and then the flood happened. And then after that, the Kings who reigned after over different city States, the lifespans of the Kings in the Sumerian Kings list are on the tens of thousands of years not just the you know tens of years or hundreds of years, like the biblical account. So when we read the Sumerian Kings list, we read about kings who ruled for 40,000 years, you know, 38,000 years, something like, that's the length, lifetime of these kings, these, these men of renown in Sumerian literature, which goes back further than the Bible in terms of when it was written down. So there is a residual memory among the people of the ancient Near East, that there was primordial times before a cataclysmic flood destroyed the area. And before those times, there were long reigns and long lifespans, long dynasties. And then after that time, they're significantly shortened there's still like thousand years or over a thousand years in the Sumerian list but they're not nearly like the tens of thousands of years before the flood. So whatever we think about it, we have to understand that this is right at home in the ancient near East. This concept, the Genesis account gives us, I mean, from our perspective, it seems insane, but from the ancient perspective, it seems much more reasonable or, or matching experience that people would have than people living tens of thousands of years. So we just have to keep that in mind. It's not proving anything, it's just showing this is the world in which all this was happening. And we may want to give pause and and wonder, why is it that these cultures have this residual memory of a time before a great cataclysmic flood when, when rulers lived for long, long periods of time? extraordinary long periods of time. Why is that? We don't know. We can't say at the end of the day, it's just a fact of history that that we see in the literature of the time. Second thing to consider is nothing in this text says that anyone else lived this long. You know, people say, well, how do people live so long back in the Bible? Everybody lived all, it didn't say everybody. We just get 10 names. Just 10 names that live these long time periods. So some interpreters have read this and said, okay, this is clearly a sign of these people walking with God and God preserving them in a way that he didn't preserve everyone else. There's nothing in the text that says everyone lived hundreds of years. In fact, even after this, in the, in the later accounts in Genesis and, and later biblical accounts, I mean, there were a, few, there were a handful of people that lived over a hundred years? I mean, you can count, I think on one hand, the number of people who live over a hundred years after this time in Genesis. So it's not like the Bible saying everybody was running around living thousand years or 900 years or 800 years. Um, So what do we do with that? Well, we just let it say what it says and we just hold it with loose hands. Do they reckon years the same way we reckon years? Uh, Some people have suggested that. We don't really have any evidence that they don't. I mean, the text seems to say that, you know, yes, they reckon years the way we reckon years. And that would be what's extraordinary even to the biblical authors about people living this long. So it's not like this was just a normal thing everybody believed happened all the time. Um, The times that this comprises, the time span, again, as we've seen, this is just giving 10 of the greatest hits of primeval culture, of ancient patriarchs. You know, we're not get. we don't know. It says each one of them had other sons and daughters. We don't know how many there were. We don't know if there were ages between them. Like each of these names could kind of be like in the Sumerian Kings list, representative of an age in which they lived or reigned or, or not in this case reigned, but in which they lived and had community with God. We don't know. The Bible allows a level of looseness and fluidity in these early chapters of Genesis that we have to make sure we don't press for literalism unless the text absolutely says it. Otherwise, we get into all kinds of speculation, and we don't want people mistaking our speculation for what the Bible actually teaches. There's enough atheist wiki websites out there that do that. There's enough anti-Christian, anti-Bible websites that take the most literalistic, fundamentalist reading. I have atheist friends that do this on my social media feed all the time. Um, take the most fundamentalist reading that they can find and then put that up and go, what the Bible teaches." You believe this nonsense? This is ridiculous. That's called making a straw man. Um, because no, I don't believe that. We don't believe that. And the Bible doesn't necessarily demand that. So you you don't want to take the 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 weakest or the most implausible interpretation of something and just assume that's what the Bible teaches and then if you debunk that or if you defend that you've defended or debunked the Bible. It just it doesn't work that way. Literary interpretation just does not work that way. So be careful of that. But this period of time, so did these people live long lives? Well, we know these 10 people did, and are, are these 10 individuals or are these 10 representative of family lines or peoples, just like Israel is representative of the people of Israel, or he's also Israel? Don't know. Leave some charity. Allow people these interpretations. Think on them. Ponder them. Oh, okay. Well, what would that mean for other passages? That's, build your theology that way. But again, hold with loose hands because we are in the preface to the Bible. You're not in, we're not on Ancestry.com right here. So we just have to keep that in mind. We got 10 minutes. Mm. Let's jump into the end of this section. It's chapter six in our Bible. This is an unfortunate chapter break. We've seen these before. Uh, the chapters were not original. They weren't inspired. And sometimes they aren't even that helpful. This is an example. This is coming at the end of this line of Seth or line of Adam through Seth. And this is kind of describing this whole situation, like the curse that that Noah's father Lamech had just bemoaned that maybe Noah would bring comfort for, bring rest to. Now we're going to kind of step back and get a glimpse of this whole time, what's been happening and why things have downward spiraled so much. And so we come to Genesis chapter six, verse one. And let me just say this. We won't have, we've got 10 minutes. We won't have time to get through this. So I'll just do an introduction. And then next week, we'll pick this up. Genesis chapter six, verses one through eight are the most enigmatic, hard to understand, multiple ways of translating section of the old testament if not of the whole bible genesis 6 1 through 8 this little encapsulation of genesis 5's genealogy in this age the antediluvian a antediluvian age this pericope sect pericope is this fancy way scholars say section uh, this pericope in genesis is if anybody says Well, that's what this means. With confidence, they are either ignorant or they're dishonest. That's it. If anybody says, oh, I know what this means, with confidence, they're either ignorant, which is usually the case, or they're being dishonest, which is sometimes the case. Because translators, scholars, theologians, throughout the centuries, centuries, going, back over 2,000 years, have read this passage in at least three different ways. At least. I say that because they're kind of like subsets of some of these views. We'll look at those next week. We won't have time this week. But the passage says, I'm going to read the passage. When Adam, or humanity, began to increase in number on the ground... The text in NIV says earth, but it's the word ground. Adam began to increase on Adama, the ground. And daughters were born to them. The Bnei Halohim, the sons of God, saw that the daughters of men were good. text translates it as beautiful in NIV. And they took any of them they chose. The text of NIV says married. So the sons of God saw the daughters of men were tov, were good. And they took. This is echoes of what Eve did. This is Genesis 3 again. Saw the fruit, saw that it was good, took. Okay, so this is meant to give you echoes. This is not going to be a normal, great, wonderful thing. There's already an ominous hint that something's not right. And this is recapitulating this tendency among humanity to go after the lust of the eyes. Something we see as good and taking it literarily, thematically, vocabulary-wise, that's what's going on. Contextually, we're going to look at next week what this whole thing is about. But these, these sons of God saw that the daughters of men were good, beautiful, and they took any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit or my breath, same word in Hebrew, will not something with man forever. And I say something because this is a verb we don't exactly know how to translate. Some texts say, my spirit will not remain with man forever, or my breath will not remain with man forever. Some texts say, my spirit will not contend with or strive against uh, man forever. We have to allow for both of those or others because this is a word we don't exactly know which verb it comes from and therefore which meaning it should have and it's not used like this anywhere else in the bible so the lord said my i'll just go with the niv reading for right now my spirit will not contend with man forever for he is flesh or for he is mortal as niv says his days will be 120 years so god says i'm not going to do something forever with man, whatever he's doing, whether he's contending, like striving, struggling, being exasperated by, or whether he's remaining with, upholding, preserving these long lives that we've just been reading about. And God says, I'm not going to do this forever because he is flesh. We don't exactly know what that means. Does that mean because he is sinful, the way Paul will later use the flesh, or because he is mortal, the way Old Testament usage of the flesh means? We don't know maybe it's connotations of both so god says his days will be 120 years is god saying human life will now be brought down from these hundreds of years to 120 tops or average or is he saying there's 120 years and then i'm going to pull the plug on this in other words is this talking about the talking about the limiting of human lives or is this talking about God saying, I'm, putting, I'm setting the clock, and there's going to be a countdown until we get a big, massive mulligan? The text allows for both. So again, we'll, we can talk about this more next week. Then we get this little parenthetical note in verse 4. The Nephilim were the, on the earth in those days, and Nephilim is just a transliteration of the Hebrew word. That's literally what it says in Hebrew, Nephilim and "em" is a plural ending and the verb nafal most take it to mean the verb to fall which is what nafal means in Hebrew so some translate this as the fallen ones or the ones who have fallen uh, NIV and others just leave it because we don't exactly know who these people were and if this is a title versus a description and so they just leave it as the Nephilim the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. So this doesn't say that the Nephilim are the children that came from the sons of God and the daughters of men. That's a common assumption, but the text does not say that. The Nephilim, whoever they were, are a different set than the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men. They're not the same thing. They were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. What this tells us is that Nephilim is a descriptor, not an identity. Because the only people who are going to survive after this are Noah and his family. So if there are Nephilim still on the earth after this, they are not descendants of the Nephilim Who were on the earth before the flood because they were wiped out so whoever they are we just have to understand that again this text just is giving us glimpses it's not giving us everything we want to know later in numbers the spies will go into the land and they'll say oh we can't we can't take the land ten of the spies will say we can't take the land moses let's go back to egypt pack it up because the people there are are mighty they're giants even the nephilim we saw there so they actually kind of harken back to this enigmatic cryptic passage of these ancient beings people known as the nephilim in order to scare the people in uh, the time of the book of numbers into not going and taking the land so nephilim a good way to think of the or one of the ways to maybe think of them is just use the english word boogeyman right Boogeyman is just a generic English word that means something scary that we don't exactly put it, you know, nobody knows who the boogeyman is or who, it's just a generic term for something frightening. Well, Nephilim likely served, especially in the time of Moses, long after this, likely served that same function, hearkening back to a mysterious, violent, scary time in the history of the world and what it was like. So the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God and the daughters of men had children by them, when sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, the men of renown. There's another question, is the they in this, these heroes, and and heroes of old is translated, the word is gibbereme, so the Nephilim were on the earth and then these were the gibbereme, which just means men of renown, men of warriors, mighty men. Who were the mighty men, the Nephilim or the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men. Again, we don't have time to get into it because we got to wrap it up. Verse five, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth. And his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe Adam, who I have created, from the face of the Adamah. I will wipe mankind from the face of the ground, or the earth. Men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, that's harking back to Genesis 1, all the things that humanity had been given dominion over. For I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah... Found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And that ends this account of the line of Adam, getting us from Adam to Noah. That's what this section of material does Genesis 5 and 6, 1 through 8. And so it takes us, it's a downward fall. And it looks great. You've got these 10 generations of people walking with God, living long lives. Things seem great, but then when we get to Lamech, Noah's dad, we find out, no, humanity has been experiencing the curse all along and uh, things aren't good. And then when we step back and get a God's eye view of everything or, or wider view of what's been happening during this chapter five genealogy, we realize that this whole time God's heart has been breaking because of the wickedness, because of the evil, because of the violence of humanity that have ruined the face of the earth as the text will literally say. So God's going to ruin them off of the earth. The wordplay doesn't work in English as well. Okay, we're going to have to go because we're right at coming up on an hour. So next week, if you saw the title of this message and you're like, demon sex, what's that all about? We didn't have time to get into it. So we will next week. We're not going to just gloss over this because I'll tell you a story. I went to India. The first time I went to India, I've been about five or six times now to teach. Uh, groups of pastors over there to do like conferences and just meet with pastor friends, and I was teaching on, not even on Genesis. I mean, I was teaching on like other stuff about the Bible, and at the end of the the three days, we said, okay, we're going to do a Q and A time. So, any questions you have? Um, you know, go ahead and i 'll be happy or you know the pastors here will be happy to answer and we had talked about everything we talked about pastoral ministry and doing funerals and uh you know just the way to care for people and caring for your family life and all of this kind of stuff I mean we had covered all kinds of topics first question, the very first question hand raises in the back, and there 's like two hundred pastors here, village pastors from rural villages in India, okay these are not like seminary pastors. first question uh yes. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, who are the sons of God and the daughters of men and the Nephilim? Thank you. Very first question. And it made me laugh because I was like, even in the most rural remote settings in the world, when people read Genesis, this section grabs them and says, whoa, 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 hold on. What in the world is going on here? So, We're not going to gloss over it. We'll look at it next week, but we're out of time right now. So if you've ever wondered about this, don't worry. You're in good company. People have wondered about this section for millennia. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. Those of you that did, you guys have a great week. We'll see you here next Tuesday. Sons of God, daughters of men, Nephilim, fallen angels, sex with demons, rock monsters in the Noah movie, all that kind of stuff we're going to get into, but we don't have time right now. So, bye.